When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. and welcome to Invested. I'm Danielle Town. My dad is out today and I'm going to finish up our discussion of uh, how on earth do you figure out how much money a fund has under management? We ended with this question last time and I have to tell you, we made a big deal like it's some big secret. It's not some big secret. It's a bit ridiculous actually when you find out. So Here's the answer. Number one, Google. Number one, the internet. Find out what other people have already found out. And generally, if you just put in the name of the fund or the name of the guru investor, you will get an answer from Google right away. And that answer will come from an interview or a news article. And I recommend once you get that answer, just clicking on it and seeing where that came from. It might be old. It might be wrong. It might not include really all the information, but it's a start, right? So it's a start where we can have a sense of, you know, the ballpark. And then from there, we need to get actual information. So this is kind of like, it's actually exactly like starting to understand a company. You can know what a company does, what they make, what their product or service is, but that doesn't mean you actually understand the company. And you can know what Google tells you about how much a company has under management, but that doesn't mean you really understand what that number means if it really includes everything. So, of course, I'm going to tell you the real way to find out how much money a fund has under management. Now, this way is also actually not 100% reliable, but it's a heck of a lot closer than your Google answer. And a lot of the time, this isn't going to matter at all because you're just following a guru investor. This isn't too deep. Just find out what's going on with them, what they're buying, what they're selling, and know that it's an incomplete picture from the 13Fs and move on. And by the way, if you missed our 13F conversation, go back and listen to them. They matter. They're important. Um, they're very interesting. And there's a whole way of finding out uh, what funds and, and guru investors own. That way, uh, that information about what they own is incomplete, as we mentioned a number of times. So to find out how much money they have under management for real, we again go to the SEC. Of course we do. They are the regulatory body. They have the actual legally binding information. So rather than going to Edgar, the SEC actually has a separate website now, which is quite nice. Well, of course I'm saying that, but I think it's very easy to use. And it's called the Investment Advisor Public Disclosure. Simple. The address is advisorinfo.sec.gov. And if you just put in, you know, investment advisor SEC, it'll come up. And the first thing that you get is the search window. You can search either by investor name or by um, the fund name, which they have under firm. So last time we were talking about Scion, 
And so I decided to just continue with Scion and see what these guys have reported from Scion. So I put in Scion. I didn't put in any extra. I didn't put in Scion Capital. I didn't put in Scion Fund. You don't even have to know the whole name of it. I just put in Scion, um, S-C-I-O-N. And two results came up. One was clearly not it. The other one was Scion Asset Management, comma, LLC, which is the one that we want. So then I clicked on that one. And it takes you to um, a sort of general information page about this company. It says its jurisdiction. It says when it's first filed. And then it has some links to various forms, two forms. The first form is its sort of check the box style form, which is its latest form ADV. And that's interesting to look at for a second. You know, it gives you a lot of details about the company it tells you where they are it can give you their it gives you their phone number um yeah lots of info here generally how much money they have generally how much money they have under management okay interesting but the real nuts and bolts are in the second link that's on that page which is part two brochures that's what it's called part two brochures and if you open that up you get a whole written out filing from this fund. And this to me is kind of like the annual report, although it's not always, uh, it's not quite the same, but it's sort of in the same style where they tell you about what this company is doing. They tell you their fees. They tell you how they get paid. They tell you what kind of uh, investing they're going to be doing, what kind of analysis they're doing, what are their risks. They talk in great detail about what, um, what this company is doing. And it's quite long for that reason. Most people never, ever read these things. I read them every now and then kind of for fun because I like to find out how they describe what they're doing. Now, remember, it's a legal document. It's not always going to give you all sorts of insights beyond just like using the right words to explain as much of what they're doing as possible so that they can't be accused of uh, leaving anything out. But it's still really interesting when you start to read more than one because you start to see those differences between them. But to get to our exact inquiry here, how much money does this fund have under management? And it tells you right here on page two, which is really the beginning of the document, right in the second paragraph, it's on a line all of its own. As of December 31st, 2019, so as of the end of last year, Scion managed $387 million of assets on a discretionary basis. I'm rounding up very slightly, roughly $387 million. So that's a lot. That's a heck of a lot. And it's a lot more than what the 13F said that they had. Again, the 13F, limited, not including everything they have, not including their cash, not including non-US assets, not including short positions. So. That's a pretty big difference. Let's go back and look at exactly how much they filed on their 13F. And to do that, I just go to data, dataroma.com and on their super investor uh, list, they've got Michael Burry, Scion Asset Management, and the most recent one, Q3 2020, 
he has roughly $154 million accounted for in this uh, disclosure for this quarter. $154 million is a lot less than $387 million. So the question is, what, where's all the rest of the money? Well, we, we don't know. And that's where some research, some internet uh, research, some talking to friends who might have already done the internet research. That's always the easiest way to find things out. <laughs> Pool information. Um, but I mean, probably the simplest answer is, is probably the right one, which is it's a mix of cash, probably short positions. Like my dad was talking about, he had short positions that he uh, talked about publicly and probably some foreign investments. I mean, that's generally the simplest answer is the truth and that's probably it but it may be something different it may be that um you know maybe his assets dropped like crazy this year i doubt it but maybe so that's something to find out and that's it that's how you do it it's pretty simple and if you google well, let me do it right now scion assets under management let's see what google tells us Ah, so Google says three hundred, roughly three hundred and fifteen million. So you know, it's all over there, all over the place. It's it's a lot, but it's a lot more than what the thirteen F is reporting, and that's really what matters. To just know that it's covering maybe half of the actual portfolio value. So that's how you do it, and this is not something that I do often or <laughs> much at all, but it's interesting to know how you make the sauce. It's interesting to know where these numbers come from. And I think it's important to know because nine times out of 10, it's not going to matter. And then the 10th time you might need to know real numbers for some reason. And, and now you know how. The second thing I wanted to talk about today is a sadder topic, but one that I think is important to, to mention. We lost... One of the great company founders of our time um, at the end of last week, Tony Shea, who started Zappos. Zappos is um, an American online, originally an, an online shoe company. And basically, if you're American, you've used Zappos. It's massive. And the great thing about Zappos, I can tell you, because I was a VIP customer, that they made me a VIP customer, I think, because I must have spent so much money with them that they were like, oh, <laughs> I don't know. I just got an email one day and they said, congratulations, you're a VIP customer and now you get free overnight shipping. And I was like, great. So, you know, I figured out at that point that I was spending too much money on Zappos. But it's so, it was so easy to spend money on them. And by the way, everybody else, before that got free two-day shipping so you know it's fast and i think now they've actually switched to everybody gets free one day basically zappos is that most improbable of companies an online shoe company that nobody thought was going to be successful because who wants to buy shoes online shoes you need to try on you need to feel the leather you need to see if it's good quality you need to uh, everybody's feet fit differently in all the different shoes so you got to see what you want online that doesn't work so the way that tony shea came up with um to get around that is everything i just said super fast shipping free and really really easy to buy and then especially and this is where he was amazing to return those shoes. So what I used to do and what 
frankly, everybody does, is you buy, I don't know, the five pairs of shoes you would try on at the shoe store, try them all on in the comfort of your own home, and send the other four back. And it worked. It just worked. It was easy. They were one of the pioneers of free returns and simple returns by sending a um, a shipping label right in the box. You didn't have to print anything. I mean, I just, I love them. But that's as a customer. I love them as a customer. What Tony Shea did on the company side that made me as a customer love that company was he pioneered the idea. Really, I'm going to say pioneered, although I'm sure there were other companies doing it. But he focused entirely on company culture. The shoe selling part of it was to him the result of a great company culture. And customers loving to buy from Zappos was the result of incredibly happy employees who were thrilled to help customers and were empowered to help customers to the point that it became a virtuous cycle. And he was focused on that in a way I don't think any other founder that I've ever heard about from back then, which was a while ago, it was back in 99 that he founded Zappos. That was a while ago. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. He was one of the, maybe the only person who was focused on employee happiness, on a purpose, and on making a weird online shoe company be weird on purpose. He wanted his employees to be able to be the same people at work that they were at home and with their friends. And all of us know most people are behave a little differently at work because you have to, right? Like it's just kind of an automatic thing. And he didn't want that. He wanted people who were weird and funny and came into work late or left work early and uh, you know, they had like tons of weird stuff in the office and um, he just, he made, he wanted it to be like people were hanging out with their friends. And then he wanted that to extend to the customer. And it did. It did. If you called Zappos, you got a great person on the other side of the phone and they made sure you got helped. How often does that happen with a customer service experience? But it happened every time with Zappos. Employees came up with new ideas because they were empowered to do that. They had the ability to make choices for their customers and make them the way that they would have wanted for themselves. That was a new idea. He eventually, through some very interesting reasons um, that he wrote about in an essay for Inc. Magazine, which I highly recommend reading, he sold Zappos to Amazon in 2009, and he didn't want to, but he did it because in the end of 2009, we were deep in the middle of the financial crisis. Zappos was doing fantastically well. They hit their sales targets two years ahead of time. He said they, were, they had 100 
they had, sorry, $1 billion in sales, which was just ridiculous. And what he wanted to do was keep going and do an IPO. But in 2009, nobody was IPOing because there was no money and the markets were crashed and nobody knew how we were going to get out of it or if we were going to get out of it. And he had investors. And when you have investors, they need to have an exit. They need to have a point where they can get their money out of the company. And generally, an IPO is the way to do that or a sale of the company. So an IPO wasn't an option and they were pushing for a sale. He didn't want to do it, but he met with Jeff Bezos. Now, he says that Jeff Bezos had actually can't come four years earlier and offered to buy Zappos. And he said no, because he thought that Amazon would change the company culture. He was probably right about that. And so four years later, Amazon came back, came calling. And he sat down with Jeff Bezos and showed him what Zappos was all about in a PowerPoint. And they had a meeting of the minds about the happiness and the culture. And I think it's similar in a way to John Mackey selling Whole Foods. I think he believed that Amazon would protect Zappos. And so they made a deal where Zappos would stay, it would be owned 100% by Amazon, but it would stay run separately. It would stay, first of all, it was based in Las Vegas. It is still based in Las Vegas. He wanted it to stay there. And it's really, uh, when you go to Zappos, you really can't even hardly tell that it's owned by Amazon. They've really stayed quite separate. And so that promise was kept. And then the second thing he did was he wanted Zappos and Amazon to, he says, um, to combine kind of like a marriage rather than Amazon taking over Zappos. And the marriage would open a joint bank account together. And what he meant by that was that he wasn't going to sell it for cash. He wasn't going to cash out because so many of the employees also had stock in Zappos. What he wanted was for their shares and his shares to just be converted into Amazon shares. And by doing so, they would be aligned with the company continuing to do well, just like Amazon was. So that's what they did. They sold it for stock. And, you know, looking back, that is a very good deal, much better deal than cash for all those employees and for him and for all those investors. And he continued to run Zappos pretty much independently from Amazon until just recently, until just a few months ago. And then he passed away last week. And I think we lost a really good one. We lost somebody who thinks different, who thought differently, who um, really made it his mission to rebuild Las Vegas, downtown, old downtown Las Vegas. He was a huge influence on and told us all how we can run companies differently and was brave enough to be out there doing it on his own and being the first. It was um, one of the first companies I ever looked at when I first started thinking about investing. <clears throat> I was trying to think, like, wh what companies do I know anything about? And I made a list of companies that I use. And, of course, Zappos, as I've said, Zappos was pretty high on the list. And I looked up Zappos, and I saw that it was owned by Amazon. And I thought, oh, okay, well, that's it. And moved on. One of my many mistakes of omission, many, many 
very, very painful mistakes of omission. I wish that I, I mean, I didn't know it at the time and that's how you learn painfully. So I've learned painfully that when I see a company I love and use and respect and that's run by somebody who's a visionary, notice even if they're owned by another company, go find out as much as I can about that and look at that bigger company, even if it seems huge and confusing and hard to value and everybody tells you it's too expensive go look at that company. So I wish I had. Um, I didn't. And I'll always remember that one. But I'm a better investor now for having learned that lesson really, really early. So I'm not going to make that mistake again. And I recommend all of you read Tony Shea, read what he's written. He wrote a book about happiness in companies. It's on my list. I haven't gotten to it yet. I wish I had. Um, and read his Inc. article, which is super, it's a, it's a very straightforward, honest view into what happens with startup companies. It's in Inc.com. It's by Tony Shea. And I don't think they have a date on it, but it's called Why I Sold Zappos. Go read that. It's good. And rest in peace to Tony. Thank you all um, for being here. It's a tough time for us all, and as we go into the holiday season here, I just wish you as much health as you can gather and happiness, and don't forget your investing practice in the midst of it all. It's a constant that will not go away, and it's been one of my saving graces in the last few months for sure. So, thanks, and see ya. Hi guys, thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information or to listen to additional episodes, visit our website at investedpodcast.com and sign up for my virtual workshop right there. Spots are definitely limited for this event. I'm not kidding, they really are. They sell out very quickly. So everything discussed on this podcast, by the way, is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it's really important, it's not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your financial advisor nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So remember that. You're on your own here. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really hope you enjoyed it.